The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Especially anybody who's here for the first time tonight, a big welcome to you. I know it's not always easy to walk into a new space, and uh, though we try to make the place welcoming, it doesn't mean it is actually welcoming for you. So if there's anything we can do to help you feel more welcomed and to use the center and the programs here, please let us know. So um, we're getting close to the end of this topic that we've been looking at for almost a year now. Some of you have been reading along in a complimentary text, Emptiness, a Practical Guide for Meditators, by a wonderful West Coast teacher, Guy Armstrong. And the book is available, unfortunately, just right now in hardback. But you can get it at Moon Palace Books. They'll give you 20% off. And even though we'll be finishing it up in the next few weeks, it's still a good book. And uh, as I've been saying the last couple of weeks, you know, the a way of looking at these teachings, the Buddhist teachings on emptiness in a very straightforward, pragmatic way. And if the more you take a closer look at the teachings of this person, as much as we can tell 2,600 years later, but uh, there are elements in the tradition that are actually very conservative in the sense of not, you know, not messing with the teachings to some degree. And, and Buddhism, we call that early Buddhism people, practitioners, who are really interested in the voice of this person. Not that we can really get it exactly right, but, you know, we get both through academic techniques and from looking at our own practice and mind, we can get a sense of what the Buddha was pointing to, what he was saying. And one of the qualities that really comes through is this emphasis on being practical or pragmatic. and. The other is not being metaphysical, like not trying to give us sort of some ontological truth about the nature of reality. It was much more focused, the Buddhist teachings, his instructions on our subjective experience as a human being and the kind of tension and stress and chaos, you know, confusion disorientation, feelings of alienation and separation, these kind of very ordinary, yucky experiences we have as a human being, how they arise, how they can cease, how all of that existential angst and tension and alienation, how that can be put down. That's kind of a provocative Thing to suggest that that kind of suffering or that kind of stress, that one can go beyond it, even while living in this world, as messy and imperfect as it is. So it doesn't, <clears throat> excuse me, the teachings aren't pointing to sort of a mystical utopia, kind of the, now we kind of make fun of the kumbaya, right? Like, Oh, everything's fine. No, he's 
really pointing to a way of being a human being in the messiness of our imperfect world where there's very real suffering and injustice and there's birth and death. There are all kinds of things that, you know, define our existence in a body, in relationship, on a planet that's like this, right? And I'm not saying there's not real beauty. There is real beauty. And there's also very real horror going on, sometimes very immediately in our lives, certainly always around us. If we have eyes and inclination to notice. And he's talking about pointing to a freedom that's here and now. And a freedom that arises through this very simple, not easy, but simple process of correcting, I guess you could say, or reforming, correcting the way the mind understands or the way the mind perceives and then understands the way the mind is showing up. So as the Buddha understood our his problem and our problem, it was really arising out of a misperception, not seeing things as they are, which is why there's so much emphasis in the Buddhist teachings about cultivating a way of being aware that has real integrity, real clarity, real stability. So that mind, our mind, right, when it's in balance in that way, stabilized in that way, it won't misperceive. In fact, it will see things as they are. I mean, one, this is where I ended last week, I think on Sunday night I ended with this, you know, this movement from our minds being identified with whatever the story is. And, you know, we have all kinds of stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, about the world, about others, right? And some of those stories are relatively unwholesome stories, negative stories, neurotic stories. And some of those stories we tell ourselves are relatively therapeutically wholesome, right? But they're still stories, and to whatever degree, I mean, certainly if you're going to be telling yourself a story, it's better to be telling a wholesome story than a neurotic or an unwholesome story about who I am, what this is, who you are, right? But the the practice the Buddha points to is a real shift away from the mind being dependent or identified or attached to the stories that it's repeating to a way of being what we would call being aware or being mindfully aware or seeing things, being aware of things as they actually are. So not in terms of our stories or not in terms of our conceptual interpretation of what's happening, but a more direct scene. Like, I mean, something simple. You know, if each of us just touch something now, like I'm touching the lectern in front of me, right? It's very easy for my mind to be in the story of I'm touching a lectern. It's Sunday night at Kamagawa Meditation Center and I'm touching the lectern. And you see, when my mind is identified or attached to that story, then I'm not aware 
of the smoothness or the hardness or the whatever the specific characteristics of the touch is right now. It's kind of like a choice. And and I, I I'm in no way pathologizing that story that I'm touching a lectern. It's really helpful, you know, like if I was going to communicate. Someone calls me up on my phone and says, what are you doing? Oh, I'm touching a lectern. You know, it's sort of a nice vehicle that I have a story. Because when I say that, like if my partner called me and I said, yeah, I'm just in front of the group touching the lectern, she could picture that, right? She could kind of get a sense of what's going on with Mark right now because of that shared story that I could convey through words. But the reality is, touching is being known, the particulars of the touching is being known, and that story is just thought being known, and that those experiences are coming and going, the impermanent nature of that, that's being known. And it just goes on and on in that more direct or elemental sense, every moment in the past, every moment right here and now, every moment to come, can be reduced to the simple, honest truth that something is being known. And this is what we mean by a moment of awareness, a moment of mindful awareness, is the mind has that kind of simplicity and integrity, not simplistically simplicity in a a kind of, uh, as in not being sophisticated or not being sort of powerful. Simple sometimes is very powerful and very clear and honest in a way that complicated isn't, right? So being simple, like what is this experience of being a human being, having a body and mind, being here now, what is that experience? Well, now we have this pointing out instruction from the Buddha that, well, it's just this, whatever it is that's predominant for you in the moment, being known. So there are those two things, that something is being known, and this is the something, and those two things, like I said last week, can't be divided, something being known. Right? So you could say that the whole path is getting clear about the nature of the mind, And one of the predominant or obvious things about the mind or the heart is this awareness. And I've mentioned many times over the last year when we've been looking at this topic that it's truly amazing that we all have a mind, a heart, right? Heart, mind in Buddhism, we don't distinguish. We all have a mind, but we haven't been that curious about the mind. We haven't used the sensitivity of the mind, the knowing of the mind to like taking awareness and in a sense shining it back on the heart. What's happening? What's being known? What does it mean to have a mind? What is the experience of awareness? What is the nature of awareness? Right? And we find, and so these are what we might call like pointing out instructions. Like this is what the Buddha found. Check it out. See if you find something similar. So one of the things the Buddha finds out from his own examination, his own curiosity, is that the more we can make that shift from being basically lost in thought to being curious 
about this more simple, straightforward reality, which is something's being known. And we're sort of training the mind to notice moment by moment that something's being known. Right? And, and as I'm talking, even just now, as I suggested in the guided meditation, isn't there some way to trust, to rest in the mind that's knowing right now? Like in the recognition that whatever we want to call it, the mind or the knowing or the awareness, right? That there is awareness. And what is that awareness doing? It's knowing something right now. Maybe it's knowing the sound of my voice or it's knowing that internal process of comprehending what I'm saying to some degree, right? But one thing or another, the knowing mind is knowing something, right? Can you be aware of what the knowing mind is knowing? Or can you be aware now that the knowing mind is in fact knowing? Can you recognize that knowing is happening? And then can you sustain that recognition that knowing is happening? Then you're getting a sense of where we're going in the practice. It's really about even as you live your life and take care of your kids and feed the dog, brush your teeth and argue when you argue and do this and do that, sustaining this recognition that this is being known. That knowing is knowing. right? So sustaining the recognition that the knowing mind, the knowing heart, the sensitive heart is sensitive to this. So it's a pretty good, it's not a perfect simile or metaphor, but it's pretty good that of a mirror, as if you know we've got a perfectly good mind, but we're sort of just lost, absorbed in the activity of being whoever we are. And then all of a sudden, we run into a wise person and they hand us this like amazing thing, a mirror that they, we can put right in our mind. And all it does is reflect what the mind is knowing. Right? It's a mirror that just is just, and in, in our sort of sense, we'd call that wisdom. Right? Wisdom, it's an aspect of wisdom, or you could say wise awareness, wisdom awareness. It's like a mirror that's just there in the heart, in the mind, and it effortlessly, like a mirror does this effortlessly, reflects what the mind is knowing what the heart is sensitive to. It just reflects. So it's that part of the practice where we're learning. It's really more about keeping it in mind. We're keeping in mind this is being known, that recognition of what's being known. We're keeping it in mind. We're not forgetting it. Because keeping what's being known in mind really strengthens the learning. That's why we call this whole, now in the West, we don't, sometimes we call it early Buddhism or Theravada Buddhism, but more and more we call it Vipassana or insight meditation because we're really pointing the name of this sort of movement or this lineage here in the West. We're really emphasizing the learning, you know, but we call it insight. We're emphasizing the insight that happens when the mind keeps recalling or remembering, oh yeah, this is being known, this is being known. Because in that way, the mind is able to track moment by moment what's being known 
what the heart and mind is sensitive to. And so it can really understand, comprehend, discern what this is and how it is that suffering, stress arises and how it is that the heart quiets down or can be really loving or free of fear, right? All these beautiful qualities that we'd all agree would be helpful. But do we know how the mind, like we probably have bumped into states where the mind felt pretty fearless or kind or clear or balanced. But what was our mind clearly aware of how that just happened so that it can do it again? That's the difference. And the same thing when we fall into really hateful states or negative states or reactive states. It would be really useful to see how that happened so that we would know how to avoid it in the in the future. So it's very functional in this way, this tracking of present moment awareness, just on a basic level. But it's not a small deal to go from our usual being lost in thoughts about things to being able to track with some continuity that recognition, oh yeah, this is being known, this is being known, this is being known. Because in any moment of that recognition, this is being known, in that moment, the mind isn't identified or caught by its story. So to just like, for any of us now, like whatever you're touching with your hand, so just tune into that. Now to completely be aware, to recognize that this touching is being known, the smoothness or the warmth of it or the softness of it, the hardness of it, to be really there means you're not lost in thought in that moment. The mind can't do those two things. can't be like, this is sort of a silly thing, and not realizing those are just thoughts, but like identified with that thought. You can't be doing that and be intimate with the touching, touching is being known. So it's like a real choice. It's, you know, just to be dramatic, it's like two realities. One we call, like we have a word in Buddhism, we call it Dharma, or Dhamma is the Pali equivalent of the word Dharma, which is a little bit more common, which sometimes is translated as the way it is, but not the way we think it is. Like Dharma is never the same as our conception thought. So I, you would never say, oh, the dharma of this moment is I'm at common ground and it's Sunday night. right? So the concept, the dharma of this is this scene being known as sight. These sounds being heard as sound. These touches, whatever the touches are right now, being felt as touch being known. Whatever mental activity, whatever emotional activity, that's just that mental and emotional activity being known. That's the dharma of the present moment. Not common ground, not Sunday, not sitting, not being here with other folks, because that's all concept, right? The other folks are seen being known, or the thought, other folks, that's just a thought being known. But when the mind gets identified takes the thought to be more than a thought, then it's like we're in this reality where the thoughts 
and the picture or the reality that they construct, then the mind clings to the story, the meaning of the story, as reality. And that's where we are most of the time. So that's why when we start to learn mindfulness, it's very hard because we have to leave behind the known, our home base. We've been mostly here most of the time, our whole life. So we're really learning to inhabit a different reality. You can call it you know, the reality of the way things are, things in and of themselves. Seeing is just seeing, hearing is just hearing. It takes a lot of training. And it has a real alive, wild feeling because, and I've mentioned this in the past couple of weeks, being in our thoughts is sort of imprisoning. And then when we can do that, then it sets up this other insight, right? which is this real marriage of awareness and emptiness. So when we really start to have more and more moments where we realize, oh yeah, it's just this being known, just seeing being known, or just hearing being known, or just the touching of the buttocks on the chair or cushion, just that, those sensations being known. Or whatever the mood is right now in our mind, that mood is being known, being seen. You see, it has a real different flavor when we're in the moment in that way. And there's this marriage, this additional insight, this maturing of insight where the mind begins to recognize that that's all there is. There's never anything more than something being known. Of course, it's always changing moment by moment. But that encapsulates, encompasses everything. That reality or my life or whatever you want to say, it's never more complicated than this being known. And even as a philosophical idea, which is how we're going to hear it initially, that's pretty out there. But as a lived experience, as a direct and immediate experiencing, it's even more of a seismic shift. It really challenges one's understanding when the mind realizes just through the commitment over months at least and probably more like years and decades of practice, one really gets this is being known is all there is. All there ever was, all there ever will be. This being known, this being known. And whatever reaction we have to that right now, whatever feeling tone is there in the heart, or sort of, that's just that being known, right? Our most sublime and peaceful moments of our lives, in their essence, in our subjective experience, was just that experience being known. The most horrific moments we've had, difficult moments we've had in our lives, they were just a particular thought being known or feeling being known or sensations being known. They were just those aspects of one's experience being known. And that, whatever that this being known was, it doesn't refer back to something that our story suggests that it refers back to. And that's really the essence of these teachings in Buddhism around emptiness. It's really about what's not here. We don't want to make emptiness into a thing. 
Emptiness is just saying that in our experience, in our ordinary experience, right now, always right here and now, that this moment is empty of something. And when the mind realizes what it's empty of, the way we are in the world, the way we show up in the world, it changes because the mind is clearer. It sees more clearly the way things are. See, when I presume that something is here that's not actually here, well then, I live with a lot of self-importance. I live with a lot of fear. I live with a lot of conceit, a lot of this like better than, worse than, same as. Who I throw out of my heart, who I keep in my heart. All this kind of neurotic stuff arises because the way my mind has been conditioned is to presume something is here that's not here. So what we do is we train the mind to observe what's here, not in terms of our thoughts, but in terms of our direct experiencing. Well, what's here right now is this experience of my body as a sensation, well, that's being known, or whatever it's predominant. Like it might be that thinking is what's predominant in a moment, so you notice there's a lot of that thinking, a lot of that movement of thought, and you know, and there's a visceral, emotional feeling, and both of those things, that dance of mental activity and the emotional content, that's just stuff being known here and now. And it's alive with change. It's like one thing after another being known, being known, being known. And whatever self conscious stuff might arise or reaction might arise, it will turn out to be just another thing being known. It doesn't matter how personal our experience feels because it's just something being known or being felt. And to keep tracking that, recognizing that simple truth that, oh yeah, this is being known, this is being known, something this Insight just dawns in the mind. It isn't going to help to think about it or to believe in it. What helps is just to develop the habit of recognizing that this is being known. It's really about being intimate and honest about our subjective experience. And it doesn't take a lot of work. Like, just notice that scene is happening right now. And then recognize, be aware that seeing is happening. And now continue to recognize that seeing is happening. It doesn't take a lot of work. It's just not our habit. And it's the same with touch, and it's the same with mental activity like thought and any emotion. To train the mind, to develop the muscle that keeps remembering what the mind or heart is sensitive to, that mirror, like training, developing that mirror that's just going to keep reflecting, oh yeah, now this is being, now this is being felt, this is happening, it's like this, it's just this, it's just this. And of course, you can use some of the words that you hear me saying right now, but you don't have to. Don't feel like you need to neurotically be talking to yourself, this is being known, this is being known. Because that will start you know, getting a little trippy after a while to be repeating those words over and over. 
But when you start over, it might be helpful, like you've been lost in thought for 10 minutes or whatever, obsessed about something, and then you remember the practice, however that happens for you, and then you might want to recognize, and you might even use those words, like, what's being felt right now? What's the mind knowing? Oh, this is being known. This yucky feeling is being felt. It's just a yucky feeling being felt. It's just that honest grounding in the present moment. That dhamma or dharma, the way it is in the present moment. Something is being known. And then you'll just naturally start noticing the, the arising of this insight that, that that way of being, the mind, the wisdom, awareness, that recognize, oh yeah, this is being known, that that's all there is, is the recognition of something being known. I mean, we could talk, we could have so many interesting late night conversations about the world and the nature of the world and is there an external reality. But the, the point here that the Buddha is making is our lived experience is subjective, right? We know the world through our mind or through our heart. That's the only way we know the world. So let's be honest about that. Let's really ground in that reality. And you know what? It turns out we're more intimate. We have our relationships. Everything starts to work better because the alternative to being in dharma or dhamma, the way it is, is to be in our thoughts. And it doesn't take much reflection to, be, to realize how inaccurate our thoughts are. Like in my case, you know, I've been with my partner for 27 years now. You know, I have my stories right? But when I recognize my stories, I'm always ashamed because my stories are never the person. But when we're identified with our thoughts about somebody, we're identified. We're totally as if that's who that person is, that particular interpretation we're having in that particular moment. It's a real crime, you know, to sort of put people in those boxes. And it isn't that we need to replace the inaccurate box with the accurate box. Whatever story I have about Wynn, my partner, will be profoundly limited because it's a story. She's never going to be a concept or a story. Right? Even if I make it a really nice story, she's so sweet. She's so kind. She's so wise. You know, if I said... But that's not, right? Because what we are, what anybody is in one moment, any moment, is something that's really profoundly wild, you know? And there's only one way to show up, which is to be in this mode of realizing, oh, yeah, this is just something being known. And one of the flavors of that is how ephemeral it is, because any moment of knowing a moment, is also knowing that it just showed up and it's already on the way out. You don't you can't know one moment of experience without recognizing its ephemeral, conditional, ephemeral, insubstantial nature. Like sand through the fingers. That's the wild part of it, of this other alternative, like being in the moment. And then realizing that that's all there is really starts uh, opening the heart, opening the mind 
to what in the spiritual traditions we call freedom. Freedom from the existential psychic weight of separation, freedom from anxiety, freedom from fear, neurotic worrying. All of that begins to, in moments at least, evaporate when the mind realizes that all this is is something being known. doesn't refer back to anybody. And again, it doesn't help to believe what I'm saying is true. It only helps to realize this in your lived direct experience. This is being known. This is being known. This is being known. This is being known. And then you'll find, like the more you do that, the more you sense that this moment, any moment, is empty, it's not more complicated than something being known, then you'll just start picking up in different places in your life where you would otherwise, like in the past, have been really tight or really reactive or feeling really weighed down by what's going on. You notice that the mind, the heart, is just so much more light and resilient and nimble and responsive and creative and free. And you'll start to correlate it like, oh, and it's this is important, it's not that you have something now that you didn't have in the past. It's more that we had something in the past that we have lost along the way, or sometimes people talk about it as worn something out. Now we say we've worn out wrong understanding. And what's left is right understanding. But it isn't even that right understanding is an understanding. Or you could say right understanding is understanding that wrong understanding is wrong understanding. <laughs> right? Or like not needing a fixed view. We think like in order to be wise or skillful in our complicated lives with the difficult situations that we need to navigate, we think that I've got to be established as the person who's thinking through what I should say, what I shouldn't say. But what we find as this insight matures is that the skillfulness doesn't come from that fixed stance of being the smart guy in the room who knows what to do or knows what not to do. It really comes from being open, intimate in that, oh yeah, this is being known. And the skillful action, the skillful words, the skillful restraint, you know, however we're navigating the particular situation in our life, it just comes out of the intimacy. It even will surprise you. Oh, I can't believe how nimbly, skillfully I handled that. How did I do that? You didn't do that. The sense, the idea of you didn't do the skillful, nimble interaction. It really came out of the web, you know, the sort of impersonal web. We call this, you know, we're, we're a natural process. It comes out of the natural process of being a human being that's not identified to some fixed view, like being a human being that wants to do it right. Now, of course, it's totally understandable in situations that that thought will arise, like, I really want to do this right. 
or it'd be really easy to make a mistake here. That's going to happen, and it's totally okay that, that that happens. But the next thing is what's important. What do I do with that motivation or that intention not to cause harm? See, if we have some wisdom, wisdom will say in that moment, wisdom will go, you know what? There's only one way to support being skillful. Be present. Trying to be skillful doesn't make us skillful. It makes us tight. Being really intimate, being really alert and awake and sensitive, both in terms of the breadth of awareness and also the subtlety, the refinement or depth of awareness, like really showing up, that is what helps us to be skillful. You know, it's like if you talk to artists or athletes or you know, people who are really successful in whatever they do, they realize pretty quickly that having operating with a fixed view doesn't help, whatever it is. Like try making love with a fixed view or try negotiating something with a loved one with a fixed view, like those of you with teenagers or any sort of sticky thing in life. If you have a fixed view, like this, this is right, this is wrong, This is who I am. This is what I want. This is the result I want. It's sort of a, for sure, you're going to suffer and probably you're going to cause other people to be tight just because of your own fixedness with that view or that idea or that opinion. And on the other hand, if we show up in different places in our life in an unfixed way, in this mindful way, and in particular in this empty way, where we're not presuming something is here. We're just in that mode of, oh, this is being known, this is being known, which means we're feeling everything we're feeling. So if some emotions are triggered, we realize, oh, that's being felt. Or if we're sensing something in somebody's body language, that's just being seen, that's being felt, this is being known. We're just in the, the profound intimacy. And we're not trying to organize all that data into a strategy. So it's a real leap of faith because it's scary to do something without organizing what we're doing into a strategy. But you'll find, and start in more sort of safe places in your life. That's why we sit, you know, in our basic form of sitting meditation. Obviously, this is not going to solve all the things we have to navigate in our lives. But if we can't do it when we're sitting down in a quiet room with the cell phone off and the dog in the other room and the people we live li- live with knowing to leave us alone, and all we have to deal with are bodily sensations and some ambient sounds, and of course the worst thing is the mind, the thinking mind, right? Because all that's still there, even in a quiet meditation space. But at least it's more simple, right? And then we learn how to be intimate And we realize that the more exposed, the more open, the more intimate, the more we're in this mode of this is being known, this is being known, this is being known, without the words, right? We find that our sits, like being a human being that's sitting still for 30 minutes, we find that it starts to work better over the months and maybe even years of practice. Like we know how to be at ease, we know how to be alive, we know how to be free, 
and that relatively simple environment of sitting meditation. And then we take it on the road. We actually get up from our sitting meditation and we go brush our teeth or hang out with whoever we live with at the breakfast table or whatever is next for us. And the practice doesn't stop. It just gets more complicated. Right? We're doing the same practice. This is being known, this is being known, this is being known without neurotically repeating those words. Right? We're tracking present moment awareness. We're remembering to recognize that the present moment is being known, being felt. It's like this now. It's just this being known. right? And we're realizing that that is enough. That wise, attentive way of being is enough. And that insight, wisdom develops. The insight that this is a natural process, that recognizing and letting that insight that this is a natural process mature allows the heart to become more and more fearless, more and more nimble and creative, and more and more naturally loving. Because loving or kindness just means a willingness to feel and connect, you know, as opposed to to be defended and to separate. That's what love is. Like when we're with a child or with a pet or with a friend in a really, truly loving way, we're not judging them. We're just, whoever they, we're not putting them in any conceptual box of who we think they are. We're just alive and sensitive and really real in that sense, in that unfixed sense, unestablished, not defined sense. That's what it means to love somebody. Often we mistake love as like, I have this idea that I really love you and I want you to know that I have that idea that I really love you, right? And that's why it gets so weird. You know, so many of our relationships are weird because it's really, the love is really on the idea of an idea that we have. This idea that we're very But that's not an actual moment of loving, of being real and intimate and responsive to another being. That's a whole different thing. Maybe I'll leave it here. We'll come back. This is, for those who are reading, this is chapter 20, by the way. And uh, if you have a comment, it'd be nice to hear what you've been learning in your practice. It's nice to hear your name too. Of course, any questions that you might have, what comes to mind from your practice? Yeah, please start us off. Hi, my name is Jason. Um, hopefully this is a simple question. At the point at which you touched, touched the lectern, and uh, there was a, a point you made about the mind being 100% available in the moment of that experience versus being lost in thought. Is it polarized? Is it one or the other? Or is there some spectrum that we can uh, that we're in? Yeah. Yeah, it, it, all of all of what you said, I think, because you could be aware of the touching, and then the perceptual process that goes—that's a lectern you're touching, or that that wood is darker than the other wood, or that's smooth, right? So any of that definition, that conceptual, those conceptual ideas, as long as the wisdom awareness realizes that's just thinking being known. 
then 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 the continuity of wisdom awareness isn't disturbed. So remember, thoughts aren't the problem. It's the misunderstanding or the misinterpretation of thought. So if I get identified with the concept, the idea that I'm touching a lectern, then I'm the next thought might be, this is a little stupid. Or, you know, what do I do next? Oh, but whatever it is, I'm in the mode of the idea of being somebody giving a talk, but I'm not aware that that's thought being known. So it doesn't matter. Your thoughts can be really neurotic. The point in terms of practice would to be aware, these thoughts, this content, this emotional charge to the thoughts, all of that is just something being known. So it's definitely not about controlling our experience, like trying to stop the thought. So you can be kind of lost, but it would be in a moment where you'd be lost, and then you'd come. The wisdom awareness would come back online, so to speak, and we realize, oh yeah, having been lost was like that. Touching is like this. Being self-conscious about touching the lectern is like this. You know, so there it doesn't. It isn't. Mindfulness is in no way actually controlling anything. It's just noticing the way it is. Because this being known is what's happening now. So what we're doing is we're training this wisdom awareness capacity to know, to not forget that this is happening, that something is being known. Right? That's why we that's why it's nice to put the word wisdom with awareness, because it's more than this sort of blind or this uh, you know, just a mere the mirror has some intelligence. It knows that this is being known. Right? So wisdom awareness. Yeah, thanks for the question. Who's who'd like to be next? Yeah, all the way in the back. Diana. So I have a question that I think I've asked before, but I'm still trying to work with it. So when I'm aware, I really tend to use the mental noting, like seeing or aware of hearing or aware of feeling the water. And then I get what you're saying, that sometimes it feels kind of neurotic. And just in your own experience, having moved to the point where maybe you're not always noting, what does it feel like? Am I just trying to sort of feel it? And then maybe there's like a while that I'm not noting it. You know what I'm saying? Like without mentally narrating, how does the noting of awareness work? I think part of it is is you know kind of like falling in love initially when we realize how unaware we have been of awareness there's kind of a falling in love and we make a big deal of it but then then it's more turns into more just trusting it and trust is a good word or resting cuz awareness like I've been saying tonight it's a natural process of the mind. Nobody turns it on or shuts it off. It's just there, right? Whenever we look, there's awareness doing its awareing, <laughs> doing its knowing. And so, but initially we have to kind of make a big deal of it because we have a big habit of not noticing awareness. But we always go a little too far when we kind of make a big deal of it. We make awareness more than what it is. It's just a natural process. Right? It's an ongoing natural process. But it's a very pragmatically very important because it will 
allow the mind to let go of what it needs to let go of, right? It needs to let go of clinging. It's the only thing the mind needs to let go of is this tendency to want to hold on to ideas. And this um, hyper-attention to things being known, it's not the object. We need the objects to recognize the awareness. So when we notice the touching or notice the water when we're taking a shower, the touching of the water, the coolness or the heat of the water is being known. turns out to be more important than the touch. But getting really close to the touch, the particulars of the touch or the sound or the sight or the thought. But always remember, the interesting thing is that it's being known here and now. And that's more subtle. So initially, just to feel the breath coming in is a little bit easier. But then as we get pretty good at noticing the breath coming in or noticing the breath going out or noticing the body walking, then start uh, strengthening or being more curious about that that's being known, that it's being known, that it's just something being known, that it's just something being known. Because it really affects the development of freedom, the intuition and experience of freedom. And we really have to check it out to see how incredibly potent it is. It changes our lives. Yeah. Time for one more. Yes, please. Hello, my name is Eve. Um, So I want to ask about uh, the subjectiveness of, of knowing. So it's something to me that it feels really innate and... It takes trust and openness and vulnerability to feel it. But how does how can my knowing uh, sit in the same space as someone else's knowing if it's subjective? Yeah. Well, because it's sort of like the the connection we have with another being is kind of like a sympathetic vibration. Like when we're around somebody who's really neurotic or we're the one who's neurotic and somebody is around us, there's kind of a contagion, like a sympathetic vibration where we sort of pull each other into the same kind of frequency. And it's the same thing when there's a lot of clarity and a lot of intimacy and a lot of trust and fearlessness. It's a real gift to everybody around us. Just like we feel very grateful to be around somebody who's in a really grounded, clear, kind space, forgiving space, right? It's like a gift to be around them. So it's funny that this practice we do alone, it's a very internal, but we do it alone for each other and with each other. And that's sort of our existential situation. And this deeper level of the heart and mind that we've been talking about, as different as our life experiences probably have been, In this world of looking at our heart, looking at our mind, it's really the same kind of territory. And when we do this practice, we really uh, can feed off of each other in a beautiful way. You know, there's really nothing like a spiritual friend. You may never go party with that person. They might not know your other friends, or but you can talk about your heart and mind with them in a way that they get because they've been looking at their mind too. And at that level of a human being looking at their mind, it's very similar. That's why the Buddhist teachings from a different culture 
2,600 years ago still make so much sense because he's talking about the mind at a level that's below kind of history and culture, as important as those influences are. We're really looking at a, a more subtle aspect of the mind. But you're right to point to this sense of... Um, yeah, it's just like it's a very curious thing, actually, that we should investigate. Like, what is connection with another human being? What is that? Because it's a subjective experience, isn't it? Like when we're feeling intimate with a good friend, we're having one of those really sweet, relaxed, natural moments with another person, or a pet even, right? It's just something being known. But But how to see that without diminishing the beauty of the intimacy and the safety that can arise in those moments. Because it sounds like when I say that, oh, it's just this being known, it seems like I'm sort of di- diminishing the experience. But it's actually enlivening. It's making the experience more real because there's fewer and fewer filters on it. Yeah, I wish I could give a better answer to that really good question. But let's all live into it. I mean, that's really the answer, you know, Eve, is to kind of be inspired by that kind of question, like what what is that experience of being with another human being? What is it actually without the ideas that I tend to be dependent on or want to cling to? What is it in my direct and immediate experience, moments of intimacy? Any other thoughts before we close the evening? Yeah, and not to feel like we even need to have words because sometimes we might feel forced to put whatever we're directly experiencing into words and then it kind of loses something. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's actually, isn't that, in a funny way, that's a definition of a really good friend or a really beautiful interaction is somehow giving each other permission not to have to put it into words, whatever just happened, you know. Thanks for bringing all that up. Let's just take a few seconds to let go of the words. Just enough time to take one or two breaths together. And to appreciate a little silence. So nice not to have to remember the words. And thanks everyone for coming. Really nice to be here together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.